Well, good morning. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you, my name is Father Aaron Damiani, um, and uh, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes for the last seven weeks. This is our last sermon today in a series we're calling uh, The Faithful Skeptic. This is a word uh, for the, the main voice of the book of Ecclesiastes called Kohelet. You can translate that teacher or preacher, but really he's, he's a uh, skeptic that leaves us in the fear of God. He's a successful person who is skeptical of success. He's a wealthy person who is skeptical of wealth. He's a well-educated person who is, as we read today, skeptical of buying more books. Uh, He's a creative person who's skeptical about creativity and art. Um, He reminds me, this this teacher, this preacher of Ecclesiastes, he reminds me of uh, the comedian Jim Carrey who said once in an interview, I think everyone should become rich and famous and do whatever they dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Now, most people who have skepticism uh, uh, leave us depressed. They don't leave us happy. They don't leave us full of joy. And we call them Debbie Downers. This is the character from SNL um, who just has negative things to say about anything positive and just leaves you feeling sad. Um, That's not who this teacher is. That's not the, uh, the voice of Ecclesiastes. He's a faithful skeptic. He loves God. And he leaves us with a joyful reverence in the fear of God. We've talked about how the the main voice in Ecclesiastes, this teacher, he's kind of like one of those chainsaw artists that that can create a masterpiece out of a huge block of ice. That he can just take his chainsaw of skepticism, and instead of using skepticism to leave us depressed and doubting, he takes the skepticism to all of the false illusions of our life, and he chips through and he just saws through all the expectations that we have of life that don't fit reality, and he, he saws through all of the things that we think, man, if we could chase the end of that rainbow, we'd totally have it made, and life would begin. And he's like, no, don't buy that. And he just carves away and carves away until what are we left with? You know, we're left with a masterpiece. We're left in the presence of God saying hallelujah. And uh, our life has meaning. And that's what the teacher leaves us with. That's why he's a faithful skeptic. At the end of all the deconstruction, we're here. We're in chapters 11 and 12. And the teacher is going to leave us with the charge. And the charge is this, rejoice and remember. Rejoice and remember. Really, rejoice in the life that God has for us. I mean, take it in. Take every moment in. Overflow with thanksgiving for community and good food and drink and play and work and fasting and feasting, like take it in. This is a gift. Rejoice. But he's also going to call us to remember. Hey, remember the day of your death. Remember that's coming and remember it's going to come faster than we all want it to. And remember also judgment. Remember that one day we will give an account, we'll stand in the presence of God and he will weigh and sift what we bring to him. So how do we hold these things together? Because normally we think of, okay, well, you have two kinds of people in the world. You have the kind of people who can actually enjoy life, and you have the kind of people who fear God, but those aren't really the same people. And so he's like, no, the faithful skeptic's going to say, they actually, you can be that person who does both. You can remember God, remember reality, but 
but that can actually lead to more joy and more life. And you can bring more to the table, more passion, and fewer illusions. So we're going to talk about the interplay of those things, rejoicing on the one hand, like with freedom, but also remembering what's coming, remembering our death and remembering judgment. The first thing the teacher is going to encourage us to do is to rejoice in our present life as we remember our future judgment. Rejoice in our present life, this present moment, um, and yet at the same time doing so remembering that judgment is, is on the horizon. You can turn to Ecclesiastes 11. Um, the first verse of our reading is verse 7 of chapter 11. It's right there in your bulletins. You can turn there in your Bibles. He says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Man, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And I almost picture the teacher like writing some of these final words of the book. Maybe he's gotten up early and he's sitting on his patio and looking out at the Judean hills before the sun comes up, hearing some of the first notes of the birds uh, kind of welcoming the day. And then all of a sudden, over the horizon, those Judean hills are backlit by kind of a burnt orange sunrise. And it's like so beautiful. He's come to a point in his life where he can finally appreciate moments like this. He's not distracted by um, all the things he needs to get busy with and all the things he wants to chase of, of, of wealth and, and of success and of fixing people. and everything. He's just like, no, I'm just going to appreciate this burnt orange sunset over the Judean hills and thinking about how there won't be very many of these left for him, that he's in maybe the final season of his life. And he's like, no, I love these days. I love these moments, and I want you to love them too and appreciate them. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He takes real delight in creation. He knows what a miracle it is to be a part of it, that it might be fleeting, but it's beautiful. It might be a vapor. All of this could be a vapor, but it's a breathtaking vapor. Do you ever get a chance to appreciate how good life is, how beautiful life is? Do you ever take a moment just to savor it? Sharing an inside joke with your coworkers, as I get to do every week. Um, tasting your favorite flavor of ice cream as it melts on your tongue. Watching your kids catching fireflies at night, maybe even helping them. Or putting your feet up and watching a crackling fireplace, a crackling fire in the fireplace on a cold winter night, or maybe even just like a DVD of a crackling fireplace. Um, life under the sun is beautiful. It's a gift. Every moment of it is a gift. From a God who loves you, one of the seminal texts of all of scripture is when God puts people in creation and says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it for goodness sakes. And then he blesses them and he sets them loose and gives them all kinds of responsibility. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be creative, to learn all we can about God and reality and ourselves, to cause the world around us to flourish, to take in the blessing of God and take risks with it and plant seeds with it, to move out into the world with confidence and joy, 
And in the words of Kevin DeYoung, to just do something. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Is this hedonism? Is this living for pleasure? Is this following every whim of the appetite? And that's what some interpreters have thought verses 8 and 9 mean, that this is just sort of like doing whatever you feel like doing. Um, And maybe it sounds like that to you, verse 8. The teacher says, hey, if a person lives many years, let him or her rejoice in them all. But let them remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Now, is that saying, hey, young man, like, you're only going to live life once, live it up now, live for pleasure while you're young, do whatever you feel like doing. And that's not what the teacher is calling us to live for. He's not calling us to live for pleasure because he tried that. And he talks about it earlier in the book. He tried living for pleasure. He says in chapter two, um, whatever my eyes desires, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And behold, all was vapor and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He, He tried following his appetite. He tried even following his existential creativity. And he was like, I don't have anything left over to show you. Don't do this. Don't live for this. Uh, that's not, uh, that doesn't have any gain under the sun. Living for pleasure is living like a beast. Beasts know how to follow their appetites. That's all they know how to do. We have the image of God, and we have not been given a nature given to its appetite. Our nature is to love and create and worship for the glory of God. And that means that we must master our appetites. We must master our appetites if we were to live with freedom. The great reversal in the Western world is a redefinition of freedom. In the ancient world, freedom used to mean freedom from slavery to desires. In the Western world, the late modern West, freedom has now become to mean, in a crazy way, freedom to indulge any desire you have. But that's not freedom. That's not true freedom. That's not what we were made for. The teacher knows this. Um, what is he, so what is he calling us to do? He's calling us to rejoice in our current life, to take joy in it. Um, and he reminds us of what, to, of what is to come. The second half of verse 9 says this, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. At the end of the day, when you're done being creative and when you're done living in community and when you're done living life to the full for the glory of God, At the end of the day, there's a judgment, and God's going to usher you into it. And again, we have to ask the question, doesn't judgment cancel out the joy of life? Uh, French philosopher Jacques Ellul, um, in his book, The Quest for Meaning, reflects on this passage specifically. And, And he has an insight, and I think he's right. He says, judgment does not appear here for the purpose of clipping the wings of joy. On the contrary, it gives joy meaning, depth, and duration. So judgment is not clipping the wings of joy. It's actually giving meaning and depth and duration to the joy that we have. We long for our life to be evaluated and to have lasting meaning by a being that is greater than us. A loving and just God will receive our life and evaluate it according to his great mercy. And that allows us to rejoice. I was thinking about this, what this means for us, and 
I thought I might illustrate it with something from my own life. Uh, this is a creation that my kindergartner daughter Mona made recently. Uh, she was at school, so she was away from home, and she was under the tutelage of her, of her teacher, her art teacher, and, who taught her how to use um, mixed media and to use her hand and color and lines and uh, watercolor and, and make, a beautiful, um, uh, make a beautiful creation. And then Mona knew that she would bring this home and that she would present this to Laura, my wife, that she would present it to me. Like, Mom and Dad, look what I made. You know, I was away from home. I was learning something new. I was being creative. Here you go. What do you think? And we could go, it's beautiful. And it is beautiful, isn't it? Um, uh, And we could say, this is wonderful. I want to hang it on the fridge. Let me hang it on the fridge here. And it could now become part of our future together. We could include it in our, uh, our home life. You and I uh, need the same thing from our Heavenly Father. We need to, while we're not quite home yet, we're not in his full and enduring presence yet in the age to come, but nevertheless, we have an opportunity to be creative in a way that will make him proud. And we can give our best efforts to making the most of this world for his glory so that he can receive it and he can sift it and he can say, well done. Thank you for making this. Thank you for giving this to me. I receive it, and I make it part of my new creation. If we didn't have that, think of the meaninglessness that would wash over us, the, the sense of futility to all of our work that we'll, do, we'll give our best efforts, but who will receive it? Who will notice it in the end? How will we be remembered after we're gone? If there's no God to evaluate our life and forgive our sins, we'll lose hope. We'll lose our capacity for joy and delight when we consider how we'll be forgotten. But the good news is that God can take our imperfect lives and infuse them with his greatness and infuse them with his goodness and cause it to be part of his good and greater reality. Some of you might be thinking, you know, I don't think I'm quite ready for the day of judgment. I've done things I shouldn't have done, things I don't want God to see. I, uh, some of you think, I don't even know how to stop doing those things. And others are thinking, I, I haven't done things I know I was supposed to do. I said no to God when I was supposed to say yes, and I regret that. There's no, and maybe we think that there's no way God would receive us on the day of judgment. And the truth is that none of us would be ready for judgment were it not for the goodness of God. Because all of us have done what we ought not to have done. All of us have not done things we were supposed to do. We have all broken creation in some way or another rather than enjoyed creation. And we all need mercy. See, this was out of his great goodness and mercy. The father gave his only son who entered creation, entered this life under the sun. And out of his joy in God and out of his love for us, he created a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece to show to the Father, to present to the Father. And this was his symbol. This was his masterpiece. It was the cross. It was the symbol of Roman torture. It was the symbol of uh, like what humans do to mess up the world and, and destroy each other. And he turned that into a symbol of forgiveness. He turned that into a symbol of hope. 
He turned that into a symbol of the love of God, the symbol of heaven and earth meeting. Isn't that amazing? And this is his gift to us. He says, come to me, all who've been burdened by their sins, everyone broken, you've done stuff you shouldn't have done, you've passed up opportunities to love your neighbor. Come to me, I will receive your brokenness, and I will give you my goodness, and I will give you my mercy. And it is through the cross we come into the judgment of God with unburdened souls and with confident hearts, rejoicing in the goodness of God. All he asks of us is to believe in him and humble ourselves and ask for that beautiful exchange. What's the teacher saying? He's saying life is a gift, and this gift matters a lot. It matters more to God than we can imagine right now. Uh, It matters for eternity. Listen, if you knew God delighted in you, how would it change the way you live? If you knew he, he loved you, if you knew in the depths of your being that he's forgiven you, if you knew that God took your life seriously and, and appreciated how you were living for his glory, how would that change the way you live? What kind of freedom would that give you? The teacher wants us to know that in the depths of our being, um, so that we can rejoice in our present life, even, even as we remember our future judgment in the hands of a merciful and just God. Secondly, he's gonna call us to rejoice in our present life even as we we remember our future death. Rejoicing in our present life even as we remember our future death. In ancient Rome, uh, one of the most uh, sort of celebrated individuals in ancient Rome was a victorious general. Victorious generals would be fighting abroad on behalf of the Roman Empire, and sometimes they would win the war, they would win the battle, and they'd come back with all the spoils to bring back into Rome. And as they did so, the the conquering army would be behind them, and the conquered soldiers, a lot of like high-profile kings, they would be paraded around in the streets of Rome, and the, the victorious general would be dressed up as if he were a Greek or a Roman god. And he would be celebrated as such. And they would hail him through the streets and they would make a pilgrimage to the temple where, where there would be a, a ceremony sometimes celebrating the divinity of this uh, Roman general. All the while through the parade, there would be next to the general, seated right next to him in the chariot, a servant that would whisper in his ear, Memento. Memento mori. Memento Remember your death. Remember you will die. Remember that death is coming. Remember that you are mortal. Listen, that's what the teacher's been whispering in our ear for the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Memento mori. Death is coming. Uh, He says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, remember also your creator. Yeah, so flip over to the next page. Um, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. We need to remember one day that creation, he's describing the end of creation, the undoing of creation. And maybe you're a scientist 
And you're like, yeah, like that's somewhat of how the world will end. The sun will burn out of energy, right? And the earth will freeze over, and that will be the end of life. The Old Testament prophets described the end of creation in the same way. They, they talked about the sun and the moon and the stars being darkened on the day of the Lord. Um, and so maybe as the sun is rising over the Judean hills, if that's when the preacher is writing, that's an imaginative scenario, but maybe he's thinking about that day, the day when it's all going to end, the day when the sun stops shining, the day when there's, the Judean hills get flooded because of an ecological disaster, when it's either too hot or too cold to live, when the beauty of life falls apart, when it's March and it's a polar vortex in Chicago, he can picture that day. Um, creation will come to an end. It will. Both testaments in scripture tell us that will. Um, not only creation, but also civilization. Chapter 12, verse three, he says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, who are the keepers of the house? Well, uh, these are uh, the, the fine lords and ladies of an estate maybe like Downton Abbey, of a once bustling household with all kinds of economic activity. Well, well they're trembling. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe, maybe they're old and, and their bodies are trembling. And he says, and the strong men are bent. Who are the strong men? Well, potentially the servants doing the labor. And, and they're they're the strong men, but they're bent. And then the grinders, the, the, the workers cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Um, people peeking through the window to see what's going on as creation is undone, and then they kind of re retreat from the curtain back into the darkness. And uh, uh, a once bustling street has been shut down. Verse four, the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. The street, the economy, the art scene, it's all diminishing, 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 dying. Memento mori. Memento mori. Memento mori. Everything we put our energy into will run out of energy one day. Civilization will die. Creation will die. And one day we will die. There's some imagery in Chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, of a, a body deteriorating and a, and a funeral service, people mourning the death of someone, and he wants you to be the person who's being mourned, like this is your funeral day. The mourners are going out into the streets. It talks about the silver cord. It's interesting imagery. There's like a silver cord that's holding a golden bowl, which is probably like a pitcher of water. The cord snaps because it runs out. The bowl smashes on the ground, and the liquid escapes. Well, this could be an imagery of kind of the end of life when the human body stops working, and the spirit kind of liquidates out to God, where the dust returns to the ground, and whatever happens on the other side will happen on the other side. It'll happen to us. Memento mori, we return to our creator now, what good does it do to remember our death? Again, isn't this a Debbie Downer situation? I'm sure Debbie Downer talked a lot about death in her monologues. Um, listen, remembering the end will highlight what a gift the present moment is. Remembering the end helps us savor the present moment with more passion and more intentionality, to enjoy it, to thank God for it. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The whole spiritual life is learning how to die. And as you learn to die, you start losing all your illusions and you start being capable now of true intimacy and love. The whole spiritual life, it's learning how to die, to, to die to false illusions, to die to false quests, giving us the freedom and capacity to say yes to the present moment and yes to reality as it is in God and yes to true intimacy and yes to love. And all those things become impossible when we are living with illusions that we refuse to die to. The teacher wants us uh, to be free of all those illusions. The teacher wants us to learn how to die to everything false and petty. The teacher wants us to get right with God and to get right with people in our life, living in his love, loving with a whole heart, bringing our sense of wholeheartedness into every situation we are led into. Um, it's interesting, the, um, so at the end of Ecclesiastes, the teacher stops talking, and there's a father who takes up everything the teacher's been saying for 12 chapters, and he's like, you should listen to this guy, basically. And he's like, the words of Kohelet, the words of the teacher are like goads. And a goad is like a pointy, annoying, kind of prodding um, stick that gets you moving, and that, that sort of gets you unstuck. And, and the father's like, listen, let the teacher goad you out of false living, goad you out of illusions, goad you into action, goad you into the present moment where you live wholeheartedly and you live freely. In light of how short life is, what could you lay aside? What kind of pettiness, silliness, self-absorption, half-heartedness could you lay aside given how short life is? Um, in light of how quickly we will give our lives to God, what good things would the preacher goad you into embracing and taking up with freedom and joy and forgiveness and creativity? What action can we take? What phone call is on the other end of this worship service? What kind of, what kind of uh, uh, presentness and aliveness can we bring to the moment God has given us in light of our future death? Man, memento mori. Let death teach you how to really live. And that's all the preacher has to say. He says, vapor of vapors, everything is a vapor, meaning everything that's good, don't even try to bottle it up. Don't even try to take it with you. Just enjoy it. Let it take your breath away and fear God and keep his commandments. That's what the father says at the very end. He says, this is the end of the matter. Um, uh, all has been heard. This is chapter 12, verse 13. Um, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is where it leaves us, in the fear and the reverence of God. Not a fear of God like God's driving you away because you're scared of him. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of awe and respect that you have of someone who is both merciful and loving as well as strong, where, where you, you so, you, you know, you adore them to the skies and here they are receiving you, loving you, mentoring you, taking you to the next level. And that's, who, that's the kind of person God is and fearing God is coming into his presence with confidence, with a sense of awe and majesty and joy and worship. And that's what the preacher wants for us. 
will rejoice and remember in the presence of God at the table here. We'll remember all that he's done for us. We will remember where he's, go- where he's called us to. Uh, and we will rejoice in the presence of Jesus who has been through death and who will walk through death with us. You know, we're about to enter the season of Lent, and this is, we're, we're, we're going to be in a series called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And this is the season where we really truly learn how to rejoice and remember at the same time. We remember our death on Ash Wednesday. Remember, O oh man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, but we repent then and believe the gospel. We walk with Jesus, learning how to fast and feast like him to be alive to the spirit, to be alive to the present moment, to cast aside false attachments, false addictions, and false living, and go on a pilgrimage with Jesus uh, into the presence of God. This life is a gift. This life is a vapor. So let's leave behind false quests and silly games and hold on to the present moment. Memento mori. Memento mori. Let's let death and judgment teach us how to truly live in the fear of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.